Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of His Only Vice, the film podcast where we discuss the movies that shaped and shape us. You guys, I'm very excited about this episode. It is another themed episode, much like the Black Director series episode that I did. Um, This one today, we are going to be focusing on the films in the queer cinema canon. Um, I've picked a couple movies to um, sort of encapsulate different experiences, whether it be the lesbian experience, the gay experience, the trans experience, what have you, um, that have sort of been released over the past, gosh, um, 70 years, I think, we'll go back. Um, We're just going to look at some of the movies that uh, stick out to me, and I wanted to, you know, sort of curate a collection of movies that offer different perspectives and are from different uh, areas of the globe and are, you know, told in different languages um, by straight people, by queer people, what have you. Um, we'll sort of take a look at, you know, their social context, historical context. We'll take, a, you know, a look at how the Oscars track record is with queer folks. Um, but yeah, why don't we just dive in? I'm really excited. Um, I wanted to release this episode in Pride Month, but obviously I procrastinated and that didn't happen. But I did, you know, like have to survive quarantine and moving and um, coming back to New York from Vermont. So, you know what? It's better late than never. Give me a damn break. Just kidding. Love you all. Um, all right, guys, let's just jump in. Um I chose uh, movies that either, you know, meant something to me or movies that really stuck with me or movies that I think more people should know. Um, I tried to steer away from, you know, super well-known movies, although obviously, of course, I included some extremely well-known ones. But I wanted to know, you know, highlight some ones that have really infiltrated the cultural zeitgeist and also ones that I think, you know, more people could, you know, throw some money at, throw some views at, what have you. Um... I can't wait to discuss these movies, and hopefully you guys will, you know, text me, message me, what have you about them, and we'll we'll share some perspectives. So let's jump in with um, perhaps what is the most important movie in the, you know, queer cinema canon that has affected, of my life, that's affected me the most, and that is, of course, Ang Lee's 2005 masterpiece, Brokeback Mountain. Um, I was just talking with my roommates today about how much this movie affected me the first time I saw it and how much it sort of, you know, skewed and shifted my view of the queer experience. Like, growing up a uh, queer kid in the middle of nowhere, um, I this movie was the butt of a lot of jokes, right? It was, you know, just kind of sidelined as the gay cowboy movie, um, and wrongfully so, because it's so much more than that. Um, but it became like this idea that, oh, if you like Brokeback Mountain, you must be gay. Or as the bullies would say, you must be a fag, right? Like so many people would throw around Brokeback, like just Brokeback as like an insult. And it's such a shame because as people in the film industry know, and people who love films know that this movie is really, truly one of the finest movies of all time. And, um, it's such an epic achievement brought to life by the unparalleled mind of Ang Lee. Um, in 2020, it, it it obviously, you know, is more widely accepted and loved. So that's very exciting. But um, when you, you know, you walk in on someone watching this when you're 10 and they say, oh, you have to go or not 10. I guess I was probably 12 when this movie came out. Um, but, you know, I, I walked in on a family member watching it and they like acted like it was a sin that, you know, they were watching and that someone, you know, walked in on them watching it and I couldn't possibly watch it because God forbid anyone find out about the queer experience before XYZ age. But, you know, this movie like really affected me. I ended up watching it alone and I sort of talked about this on the first episode if you guys are, you know, a fan and have been following me and Taylor Deer discussed this in the Call Me By Your Name episode. Um, it was sort of a, 
a movie that I watched in the secret and then, you know, cried my eyes out on, on feeling seen and feeling recognized. Um, you know, it, it has, there are many ways in which you can critique it now and that, you know, it has a straight director and, you know, two straight leads. But when you look at the historical context, like this was 2005, there wasn't tons of um, queer representation in huge movies by, you know, big directors. Ang Lee was, had so much momentum in the U.S. post um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So to see him take on this big sweeping sort of Western-y take on the queer experience or the gay experience, or even, you know, you could call it the closeted experience, um, was very exciting, especially with huge movie stars that were on like the brink of their stardom, like Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams and Hathaway, many of them who went on to get nominated for Oscars, win Oscars, um, it's a very exciting thing to think about being made in 2005, despite the fact that it's sort of, you know, I guess you could argue that it um, uh, like continues this narrative that like um, only ma- like it's only mask for mask gay stories that matter. Right. Or um, I don't know, it, it, it sort of like reinforces this idea that like every queer person just wants to be with like a hunky man, which I, I, I understand that critique. But when you look at it, like in in context, it really is a, a watershed moment, I would say, especially for large budget contemporary um, queer cinema. Um, and also, like when you when you look back at the 2005 Oscars and realize that that circle jerk of a movie, um, Crash, one that racist trash. Um, it really is such a shame that like the Academy wasn't ready to embrace a a queer narrative like this when you know they were like, oh, you know what, we'll just toss Ang Lee his best director Oscar, and obviously he deserved it. Um, but I, I, it felt like that was sort of a consolation prize when really like the whole, you know, industry at large was like, oh, well, there's no way Brokeback Mountain will lose. Right. And then wham, it did. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a movie that, um, I think you, you appreciate more as you grow older, as you realize that, you know, it's, it's sweeping, it's poignant, it's devastating, it's familiar. It's, you know, really in this movie, there's something for anyone who has ever felt anything. And I guess that's where we'll leave it. Um, long live Heath Ledger, RIP, my king. Um, moving on to another one that is really, really special to me, and that's Moonlight. Um, I think I talked about Moonlight in the Black Director series. I, I mean, I know I talked about it because how could I skip it? Um, Barry Jenkins is such a hero to me, and um, I would love to meet him and work with him. And um, it's a, it's such a warm movie for being so... Um, for seeming so like hard, like the subject matter, it, it like the third iteration of the character is like a drug dealer and what have you, but he's living sort of this internal battle. Um, and it's, it's really beautiful. And it's like a story that's often overlooked. And I, I don't want to like belabor the point on Moonlight because everyone knows how, you know, genuine and generous this piece of art is. Um, but I, I think it is, you know, worth bringing up, of course, because, um, of the whole, the whole Oscars 2016 of it all when it was like sort of overshadowed by La La Land's guffaw. And, um, it's a really important piece. I think, um, when you, when you look at like the queer canon in general, um, and it's such a shame that Barry Jenkins wasn't nominated for best director. Although, you know, he did go on to win, um, best screenplay with, um, his uh, screenwriting partner, Terrell Alvin McCraney. So like, that's exciting because, you know, very straight, but Terrell is gay. So like, that's, that's good. We saw, we saw some gay representation at the Oscars that year, which is good. And then, you know, the following year, James Ivory won his, and he's also gay. So we, we had some writing um, representation at the Oscars, you know, in 2016, 2017, which is good. But um, just to like sort of wrap it up on Moonlight, right. It's um, 
it, it really is like a breathtaking movie that like demands that your heart beat at its exact pulse, right? It's so hypnotizing. It's it got these bright, rich, color-soaked palettes, and it's accented with neon and Miami sun, and it's 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 truthful and it's raw, and it it, it somehow you know metamorphosed into um, poetry that you know really felt suspended in time, right? Like you watch it and you when it's over, you're like, wait, wait what happened to to time just now? LOL, the siren. <laughs> Welcome to New York City, everyone. We are going to keep this in because we're real and raw on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I really just felt pinned to my chair as the, the the credits rolled and I processed like how a movie so specific could embrace me with its universality. And, you know, shortly after I read Richard Lawson's review in Vanity Fair, and I think I talked about this in the the Black Director episode, but I th- it, it just sums it up so well. And he, and he writes, uh, Jenkins has made a breathtaking film, one with political urgency and deep compassion and um, that uh, a deep compassionate humanity moonlight is timely and timeless a study and limits that casts its gaze up something uh, up towards something transcendent and listen transcendent does so moving on from moonlight um another uh, a recent release which just came out last year is a uh, pedro Almodovar's pain and glory um, you know, largely considered one of the greatest living international directors, Pedro Almodovar pours so much of himself into this movie. And it, I mean, its roots are, you know, decidedly autobiogra- bi- um, autobiographical. Jesus, I can't even speak English. Um, Antonio Banderas, who leads the film, is like the best he's been since Time Me Up, Time Me Down, which is another Almodovar release. Um, he's really giving a career defining and Oscar nominated performance. Um, it explores the peaks and valleys of creating art. In this case, it, it's a movie about making movies and, you know, a bit of theater. Um, and it explores, you know, the, the valleys or the pain um, include, you know, lost, uh, lost love, ruined friendships, um, heroin, while the peaks or, you know, the glory to sort of borrow from the title include reconnection and euphoric release and professional triumph um it's like a brilliantly realized and emotionally honest look at how soul crushing creating something meaningful always is despite what anyone tells you and how important it is to build a life outside of your career no matter how much you love it right like it's about wearing yourself too thin and like ignoring the other parts of your life um whether that's family or love or any any other aspect of like a multifaceted life um if we let you know one aspect of our life take up too much of the pie chart there's um, no telling what will inhabit the other parts when that slice has been consumed, right? Um, it's like half an ode to what could have never been and half an ode to what already is. It, it explores youth and the familial dynamics that shape us with an easy nostalgia that it, um, like packs quite the emotional punch. It's, it's beautifully shot. It contains frame after frame of stunning tableau dripping with that signature Almodovar color palette. Um, and the color red is most prevalent here and, you know, no surprise given that it's, you know, the color of passion and you can really tell how much passion went into this cinematic love letter because he truly spared no ink guys it is just so beautiful. Um, another international release from last year was portrait of a lady on fire, which is a French movie by Celine Sciamma. Um, and at the risk of sounding too on the nose, portrait of a lady on fire plays out like a painting come to life. It's, 
It's um, got carefully placed tableaus on screen that feel as if they're sort of gliding through time and space at the tip of a paintbrush. Um, and, and it's a credit to the perfect marriage of direction and acting and especially the cinematography. It's like got an, an amazing blend of um, moving shots and static shots. It really like forces you to focus and and figure out why Celine is choosing um, the technique that she's choosing, like, should I be paying attention to this? Should I be, you know, following along with the the sort of the stroke of the camera or the stroke of the paintbrush? And it's very exciting and alluring to watch. And it doesn't like need much dialogue and it doesn't really have that much um, because the actors are filling in the white space with so many like calculated glances and carefully studied touches and unspoken lines of poetry that sort of just like come to life with a with with the blink of an eye it's it's so beautiful um and the idea that our main character marianne can't can't paint much more than a static portrait of her subject eloise um at first because she doesn't really know her yet is like the perfect motif right it starts this relationship starts um transactional uh the film starts truncated and constructed right but once their you know colorblind companionship blossoms into like a passionate love affair we see it sort of erupt into um this beautiful painting right um to sort of, you know, again, use this sort of motif it you know, the, the portrait erupts into, well, literally quite, quite, quite literally a portrait of a lady or a relationship on fire. Um, and the film, um, it sort of like metamorphizes into, um, metamorphosizes from like a paint by number to a Vivaldi sympathy, which that's a little Easter egg. If you've seen the movie, um, there is a fucking brilliant shot at the end of this movie with, um, a Vivaldi, piece playing in the background um it's really like any unlike anything i've seen in terms of like plot and aesthetic it's deeply affecting it has like again like one of the most mesmerizing final moments of any movie i've ever seen and all i'm gonna say is um call me by your name has left the chat <laughs> basically if you haven't seen it guys it ends with this beautiful scene of adele and l um having like this emotional breakdown as she um sort of relives what was or and then what could have been like the the the, the, I, the the queer love that she left behind for you know her straight life you know this movie takes place in i think the 1600s so it wasn't really an option for her to you know follow this 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 queer love story um so yeah that movie is definitely like uh, a movie that'll linger in my mind for probably ever, especially that last shot. Um, and speaking of queer, lesbian, slash, bisexual um, foreign films, uh, the next, or, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, the next movie we're going to talk about is The Favorite, which is Yorgos Lanthimos' 2018 release in what should have been an Oscar-winning sweep, but only ended up winning one Oscar for Queen Olivia Coleman. Um essentially every year there's at least one movie that leaves me speechless right in 2016 it was moonlight in 2017 it was florida project and 2018 it was the favorite i literally left the theater dumbfounded you can literally you can ask kevin who's guest on this podcast and is now my roommate um i saw it with him for the first time and my jaw literally hit the floor sprinted out of the room and took the subway uptown numerous times because mama this movie is a gag aroo um for lack of a better term it is delicious it is like every movie lover's wet dream in every conceivable way it's lanthimos's most widely palatable film um but with no, you know, sacrifice to a singular view or taste or execution the trio of women Rachel Weiss um 
uh, Rachel Weisz, uh, Olivia Coleman, and Emma Stone. They're like truly giving career best performances in this, you know, sort of bisexual, psychosexual, melodramatic romp. Um, it's just like dripping with an unbeatable mix of like opulence and filth. Um, and like with each rewatch, it just gets better and better. Um, like literally every time I watch it, I'm just like pistol whipped by the exquisite details, right? It's like every turn, like with, with every turn, it's like this ruthless sensory overload of like punishing, um, aesthetic details. And it's just, oh, it's so good between like the, the, the fish eye shots and the long sweeping shots and those like signature, um, static shots that Lanthimos does. It's just like so stylized and so beautiful. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a short list of directors that I'll, you know, run to watch every movie that they do. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is obviously on the top because you guys have heard me gush about him. Um, Bong Joon-ho is another one that I'll watch anything of. And Yorgos Lanthimos is another. I've seen his whole filmography at this point, And it is just like, it's, it's singular. It's unbeatable. It's so, 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 so good. All right, guys. Next up, we have a movie called Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai. Um, and... This movie um, is is heartbreaking. Um, beautiful, but heartbreaking, right? At first glance, it's much like Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which, you know, and I mean to say that as it has an unabashedly misleading title. Um, much, much like Marriage Story is a movie about divorce, Happy Together is a movie as much about sadness as it is about love or happiness. Um you know, from, her, from Hong Kong, our central couple arrives in Argentina in hopes of taking, you know, like a holiday road trip. Um, but when things go adrift and the relationship crumbles, one stays in Argentina taking up a job in a tango bar, and the other one sort of disappears. And like the tango, the movie stares us in the eye, it invites us in, seduces us, and leads us around the dance floor with equal parts force and submission, right? Um you know that coupling of moves in the tango where like the leg or the foot flicks and then slowly inches down the leg of its partner that sort of like signature move that's in the tango and then it sort of smooths out well that's what watching this movie is like it's it's a dance it's a roller coaster and it's more of a movie that chooses you rather than you choosing it um it, it lingers on like everyday things like furniture and skin and smoke and food and and it's narrative it's narrative isn't necessarily as driving as you know other films um but it certainly isn't slight like it it, it doesn't it, you know what it's about and it, it it's so chock full of emotion that the like what it makes up for or what it lacks in you know narrative drive per se or narrative plot points it makes up in like allure um you, you somehow it's another movie that sort of hypnotizes you um and it's also, like I was saying, it's just like deeply sad. Um, you see a relationship shatter and be put back together again and then shatter again and be put back together and then shatter again. And it's all under this watchful eye of this, you know, master Artur director, Wong Kar Wai, and his stunning sense of color and tone and atmosphere. And I think I've um, gushed about In the Mood for Love on this podcast, but I just love the work of Ankar Wai so much. And it's it was so interesting to see his perspective on this queer relationship. Um, you know, a, a, Chi a Chinese director filming a movie in Argentina about a Chinese gay couple. It's, it made for a very interesting um, atmospheric sort of movie that you realize is actually deftly titled. Um, because it's not just about being happy together. It's about like the work that it takes to be happy together. And it has so many beautiful shots of, 
you know, our central characters dancing and um, just lie, like spending moments on the couch together. And um, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a really intimate portrait about what relationships actually take. And this feels like a good segue into our next film, which is Disclosure, Translies on Screen, which is a 2020 um, release by Sam Fetter, um, a trans man director who directed this documentary for, um, I'm not sure if it was for Netflix, but it ended up being released on Netflix given, you know, the 2020 entertainment industry drama of it all with Miss COVID. Um, Disclosure is, you know, an impeccably researched and presented documentary about trans lives on screen that shows, you know, just how important, powerful, and empowering and empowering it is when we let, um, you know, people from disenfranchised communities tell their own stories and how damaging it can be when we don't. Um, It features testimonies, thoughts, anecdotes, and perspectives from trans trailblazers, um, including but not limited to um, Laverne Cox, Jen Richards is in there, Alexandra Billings, Jamie Clayton, Chaz Bono, Alexandra Gray, Jens Ford, uh, Trace Lissette, MJ Rodriguez, Lily Wachowski, Brian Michael Smith, and there's so many more brilliant trans voices lending their voice to this documentary. The movie was originally like planned to be made and shared in schools to sort of show people, you know, the history and um, sort of belittlement way before empowerment of, you know, trans voices on screen and trans identities on screen. Um, And it it, it opened my eyes so much. And I consider myself to be like, you know, pretty liberal and pretty um, woke and like really um, considerate of, you know, trans issues. But it it even... um, reshaped my mind and like exposed me to so many things that I never even thought of or even considered in that matter, especially having seen a large number of the films that they pull clips from. Um, it's extremely accessible. It's right on Netflix. It's, it's super frustrating, but it's also beautiful. It's illuminating. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, it leads to the world being a bit more empathetic. Um, some of the like, you know, more beautiful moments are, or some, let some of the more, infuriating moments are like when Candace Kane talks about her um her appearance on Dirty Sexy Money I think um when they lowered her voice like a half it or like a full octave to like go right from jump oh just so you know this really gorgeous woman well she's trans um just to like you know alienate her or um make it like this weird plot point that oh well this is like a trans person being the butt of a joke which and they didn't even tell her so like watching that i was just like oh this is horrible like i can't believe that this happens in hollywood like pretty recently too that show was not that was on the air not that long ago um but some of the more beautiful moments are when they you know talk about laverne cox and her being fully fleshed out as a character and um emmy nominated person in her involvement in um, Emmy nominated this year as well um, and her involvement in um, Orange is the New Black. So it it has some really beautiful moments in uh, that it allows us to see some good representation of trans lives on screen. So it's really important to, um, to see both sides and make sure that we carve out a a bright future for our trans brothers and sisters Um, and non, and non, non non-binary folks our our trans siblings. Um, 
Another movie that I really love and want to highlight is a 2014 movie called Pride by Matthew Warkus. Um, Pride was a, you know, was a queer palm winner at Cannes in 2014. And what really sticks out to me about, you know, Pride is that it's a queer film that doesn't have a tragic ending. Like, there's so many tragic ending queer cinema um, staples that I'm like, God, is this all we're going to get out of a queer movie? Um, but Pride is like, it's, it's so fun. It's such a beautiful story about, um, these people shaping them or uh, reshaping the minds of these people in their little Welsh town, um, during like a coal miner strike and, you know, the pride parades that were happening there and it's based on a true story and they're making a musical adaption. It's like everything, um, you know, sparkly and fresh and wonderful about a rom-com, but with like the added layer of real social justice issues. So it's such a fun watch. It's, um... It's very heartwarming. It's got a good cast. Imelda Staunton's in there. Um, and Matthew Orcus is, you know, a pretty renowned director of theater. So it's it was cool to see his take on uh, this film. And you should just watch it. It's just, it's, it's so... Um, I think it was sort of sidelined as sort of flouncy, but it really ha- it got great reviews um, from film critics. So it's definitely something you should wa- take the time to watch. Um, if you're looking for a movie that, you know, doesn't end with, you know, Heath Ledger killing himself or um, Army Hammer running away and never coming back, and Timothy Chalamet crying in the fire. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie to um, warm your heart a bit. It's like, it's like a Love, Simon type. Um, another movie that I also love is a movie called But I'm a Cheerleader. Um, and I wanted to take some time to talk about that and the work of John Waters um, because they sort of aged into um, cult cult um status where they they were sort of understood more as time went on um as like you know queer voices were allowed to be magnified and um uh more so in american film and like people started understanding well we'll get more into that so but a mature leader is what happens when you take natasha leone clea duvall and kathy moriarty and rupaul and put them in extremely colorful high camp deeply satirical film directed by jamie babbitt with all the makings of a lesbian cult classic um it's a 1999 release you know directed by jamie babbitt about a group of young queer kids stuck in a gay conversion therapy camp Um, And when the film was first released, critics generally brushed it off, calling it stereotypical and comparing it unfavorably to the work of John Waters. But I think as, you know, these critiques came from largely um, straight film critics who didn't really understand what Babbitt was going for and were sort of too afraid to offend anyone by not, you know, quote unquote, calling out the quote unquote stereotypes without actually taking the time to learn just how effective the tropes and stereotypes really are and lambasting that sort of homophobic behavior and ideology. Um... So, like I was saying, as time went on, people were like, oh, this is deeply satirical, and now we get it. So I think it sort of aged into its brilliance. Um, It has a a, a wonderful cast. The color palettes are unbelievable. It's so fun to watch. It feels like um, you're sort of biting into a candy bar in every scene, um, or reaching into a bag of Skittles, or... um, taking a bag of Mike and Ike's and and what I really love about it is the the conversion camp though it's like it's so dark to be in a conversion camp it's so fluffy and flouncy and in, in its color and then when you're back in like her home or anywhere where it's that's like considered a quote-unquote straight space it's so bleak and dull and like brown and gray so it's it's so fun to see like Jamie Babbitt uh, take all these stereotypes and turn them on their head and make it so that she can call out sort of um this hope this homophobic idea that you can you know 
uh, Christianify someone or like, you know, use God or use retraining to take, um, you know, queerness out of someone or like, it, um, yeah, it, it, it's such a fun movie and I, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't like received well when it first came out because I don't think people were really thinking, you know, thinking enough about it. They were sort of just brushing it off. Um, when really it, it, if, when you stop and think and actually process and do that, take the time to understand, um, the, uh, um, like very real things that it's rooted in, you get like, oh, okay, this is satire. Now I get it. Um, and that's sort of like the same. And to, you know, look at the source of where I'm sure Jamie Babbitt got her inspiration and where people were comparing her was to the film of John Waters. Um, in particular, I wanted to look at his 1974 release, Female Trouble. Um, Female Trouble, of course, stars John's muse, the late great divine. Um, and basically it is, you know, grotesque cinema um, in the, you know, great tradition of John Waters. It is like anti-everything Hollywood. Um, it stars, you know, David Lockery and Mary Vivian Pierce, Mink Stoll, Edith Massey, all these people that he was, you know, known to work with. Um, and he, he went out so far to like say fuck you to Hollywood by dedicating it to Manson family member, Charles Watson. Um, and he like waters his prison visits to Watson inspired sort of like crime is beauty theme in the film. Um, and basically like. It's just this crazy romp about um, this woman who has a kid and then, like, emotionally abuses her. Dawn is her name, um, which, you know, is played by Divine. And what, what's so funny about it and what is, like, so um, sarcastic and, you know, lies in, uh, um, 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 roots the parody of it all is, like, this idea that... Um, there's this character Gator and his aunt Ida is like distraught over him marrying a woman. And she hopes that he'll, you know, what she says is quote unquote, turn Nelly or, you know, become gay and take a male lover. She wants him to be gay so badly. And it's like sort of this, this fun spin on the idea that like kids want, or parents want their kids to be straight so badly. And he, you know, sort of flips that on its head. Um, this movie is definitely not um, for the faint of heart. And you definitely have to go in knowing like it's absolutely insane, grotesque, crazy middle finger, fuck you to Hollywood. Um, and that it's like very based in like the theater of the absurd or the theater of the grotesque. Um, but if you can sort of remove yourself and sort of take um, take the, the piss out of life and really go along for the ride. John Waters movies are such a fun watch. And of course, like his most, you know, palatable movie is Hairspray, um, where Divine plays the, you know, the well-known character of Edna, um, Turnblad. And, but if you, if you take the time and it's become, you know, a huge musical and blah, 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 blah. But um, if you take the time to watch some of his older stuff, um, it's really fun to like see this like high camp, high drag, um, uh, sort of catalog and it's always a pleasure to watch divine like play these ferocious women characters in you know his um in her um signature drag with her skinny eyebrows and what have you um and i also recommend there's an amazing documentary about divine called i am divine i believe and i believe it's on netflix or amazon but you should also watch that and it has you know part of it has pieces of um, John Waters' crew discussing um, Divine's life and John Waters is in there giving wonderful um, insight into her life. And it's just so great. Like, you should take the time to watch 
um, John Waters' stuff in general, but I think Female Trouble is a good one, and it's like one that stands out to me for sure. Um, there's also, you know, Pink Flamingo, and which is, you know, going to go down in infamy because Divine eats a um, um, piece of dog shit, like actually does it. Um, Pink Flamingo, sorry, plural. And there's also another, you know, crazy trans- transgressive cult film called Multiple Maniacs that he did in 1970. Um, but yeah, look at his stuff. It's so good. Um, he also did, you know, Cry Baby, um, Polyester. But yeah, moving on from Mr. Waters, um, another film I wanted to look at is The Handmaiden, um, which is a South Korean release by Park Chan Wook that came out in 2016. Um, it revolves around one of the most interesting and unique storylines I've ever sort of witnessed. It's like, a deliciously queer, fiercely original, mind-bending, lavish gem of a film that I sort of stumbled upon um, on Amazon one day, sort of before this, you know, Bong Joon-ho South Korean renaissance. Um, and it centers around two women, Sook-hee and Lady Hadaiku, um, and the man that brought them together, Count Fujiwara, as they dance this sort of delicate dance of, you know, who knows who, and who's loving who, and who's fucking who, and more importantly, who's fooling who. Um, it's sort of like um, got major twists. It's, it's like a movie in three acts, and at the end of each act is like this crazy twist. Um, and it's really a, a movie about the testament. Uh, it, it really is a testament uh, uh, to the power of women as they band together to capitalize on the stupidity of um well, men and their most primal desires. Um, And without giving too much away, it sort of presents us with, you know, all these twists as love blossoms and deception burns. And um, its plot and aesthetic have, you know, something for everyone, you know, from commercial to indie audiences alike. Like it's got beautiful visuals and it's absolutely stunning to look at, Um, especially because it's like against this bleak backdrop of Japanese occupied Korea. but it's also got like these high octane moments of like big blockbuster performances um, and the performances themselves are like incredibly precise and the social circumstances are delectably idiosyncratic and um, it's equal parts dramatic and humorous and visceral and cerebral, macabre and buoyant. It's it's really like visually wondrous and um, it's definitely a, a really fun outing for Park Chan-wook and it's definitely one of the my favorite movies of the 2010s. Um, and when you when you watch it, which you definitely should, blink as little as possible because you really don't want to miss a B in this one, guys. Um, yeah, it's it. I believe this one's on Amazon too. Um, if you're a Prime member, so it's it's easy to stream. Um, if not, you should definitely rent it because it is so good, and you should absolutely dive into um, more South Korean film. Um, it's South Korean directors have truly been making some of the best movies um, in recent history, so you should get into that, Mama. Um, and another one I wanted to discuss was um, Itu Mama Tambien, which is a 2001 release by, you know, the, the great Alfonso Cuaron. Um, it is part road movie, part travelogue, part coming of age flick um, that sort of, you know, quickly became an art house darling. Um, it's, you know, loosely scripted and largely improvised and extremely viscerally shot with a handheld camera. Um, and Quaron has like, you know, managed to craft a, an intimate look at the sexual freedom, budding adulthood, friendship, love, loss, and adventure that are like you know, the adventure that's sort of at its core of the movie. Um, the cinematography is like absolutely brilliant, which is, you know, something we've come to 
know and love and expect from Alquanzo Cuaron. Um, it's it's both like visceral but also sweeping. It like gives it sort of this documentary feel as it puts us like in the action firsthand. Um, it, it makes us too feel like we're driving through the Mexican countryside, um, sort of en route to like this unknown beach. Um, and, and it might be an interesting take to include this film on a queer cinema list because, you know, it is dripping with like late teenage hormones and masculinity and heterosexual sex, but the finer details are like incredibly homoerotic. Um, like if this movie were a book, like the mar- the margins, right, they're scribbled with little love notes between the youthful men um, central to the story, which are played, by the way, by young Diego Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal. Um, both wonderfully impactful and wonderfully easy on the eyes. Um, and at one part, um, or at one point, um, the central heroine, um, which is like the sexually liberated yet achingly sad Luisa, played by, you know, the luminescent Maribel Verdu, um, she flat out makes a comment about the boys so obviously wanting to quote unquote fuck each other when all they can do is about argue, when all they're doing is arguing about who's sleeping with one another's girlfriend. Um, and, and this is the most blatant example of Quaron calling out that sort of like underlying desire for homosexual exploration um, until, you know, the climactic sex scene that um, has sort of become synonymous with the film, the, the, the threesome that everyone sort of knows about. Um, but the rest of the film explores male on male friendships and intimacy in ways, uh, intimacy in ways that are never really heavy handed. Like you sort of have to watch the, the tension unfold, like in the pool Um in the the like the ways that they speak to each other and look at each other um it like explores how the boys actions are brash but their motivations aren't like you know revealed so aggressively um and they're like explored in ways that you know like an american film never would like american film doesn't seem to dare to um break down these sort of like male-on-male connections that aren't necessarily um, you know, without necessarily labeling it like this is a queer movie. Um, and the brilliant thing about Coron is that he's so free of American film standards that he handles these explorations of adolescence without the confines of like the Hollywood machine um, in ways that American directors I, I haven't seen like do with such nuance. Um, and, and overall, it's such a lush and intimate and I keep saying the word raw, but it, it, it is raw like and it really pulls at the threads of something primal. And um, I would never expect that from a movie packaged as a road, a road film, which, you know, is a label I'm not using pejoratively, but it was definitely surprising. And though the movie is largely filled with straight sex and straight sexual conversations, the margins of this movie are really when you see this sort of like primal sexual exploration that I think is, you know, latent in everyone. I think... New slash guys, I think everyone's a little bi. Um, and this movie really ex- explores that really wonderfully. All right, guys. So the last one that I wanted to discuss sort of like in detail before we, you know, rattle our way through some others um, in, in, you know, in less detail is a movie called Blue is the Warmest Color, um, which is a 2013 release by Abdel Kachich. Um, this movie is really something. And the story behind it and sort of like the mythos of it all is also quite um, something. It is the only movie to be awarded the Palme d'Or that was given to the lead actresses and the director. Um, The lead actresses being um, 
uh, Lea Saido, who is now, you know, of 007 fame, and Adele Exertropoulos, which I'm sure I pronounced her name wrong, but um, Adele and Leah are the only women, aside from Jane um, Campion, who have won the Palme d'Or, and Jane, of course, won for the piano. Um, there's also, like, so many um, stories about the grueling, horrible set life, that, and, like, this movie filmed for six months and there was like 800 hours of footage shot with extensive b-roll and um there's so much critique about like the the poor working conditions for the set and the crew and lead actresses and um its depiction of sexuality through a male gaze especially you know lesbian sex but i think it is because of this and because of like the final product i think it is worth discussing um it's both, you know, explosive in its portrayal of first love and, you know, divulgent in its portrayal of lust, but it is also an unforgiving portrayal of loss. Um, you know, it's shot with pre- precision and intimacy and a-, a color gradient that really does make blue feel like the warmest color in the rainbow, which is so strange because it's so often considered a cool color. Um, but the true wonder is the women at the center of these movies, uh, or of this movie, which, you know, again, is Adele Exertopoulos and um, uh, Lea Saidot. Um Adele is really giving a seismic performance as, you know, a character also named Adele. And Lea is, or Lea, um, however, I'm not really sure how it's pronounced, to be honest, um, portrays Emma, which is the object of her omer- her overwhelming affection. Um, they play these roles with such roaring effect, um, and its real fault lies in its direction by a straight man, right? Like, So the sex scenes are extremely intense, like some of the most intense ones I've ever seen on screen, like almost uncomfortably so. Um, like it, Some of them almost become exhausting, um, and it's clearly filmed by a, from a male's perspective, and you know, though the first one is, is is effective in its portrayal of raw, uninhibited desire, it goes on for, like, too long that it feels like it's no longer there purely for character development, right? Um, but that aside, the film really does have one of my favorite scenes of that whole decade, and that's when Emma and Adele first start spending time together. They take this afternoon in the park. They start, like, discussing Sartre and art and French literature and... Um, while that's, you know, titillating conversation, what's really going on between the lies is what makes the scene so, so, so good. Um, Adele so clearly knows exactly what she wants, which, you know, is Emma, but is so clearly scared of wanting just that. You see, like, this young queer girl's desire be trampled by shame and fear, and it just feels so relatable. Um, and I haven't seen that rush of emo- emotion associated with first love um, portrayed so realistically on screen since, you know, probably in the mood for love um even though you know even though both of those in the mood for love and um blue is the warmest color start with such restraint and obviously you know in blue is the warmest color it's blown to pieces soon after but um it's got like so many like beautiful little scenes outside of just the sex scenes that made so much headline um that it makes like the three hour running time feel um, much more palatable and more um, grounded in reality and real life. Um, Especially it's like explosive final 20 minutes when um, 
Adele is trying so desperately to win Emma back. Um, that's a little bit of a spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but as we've learned, every queer movie in the 2010s ends with disaster, except for Pride. Um, but I think this movie is definitely worth a watch with, if you can just keep that filter in mind that yes, this was, um, this was directed by a straight man who was not very kind to the cast or crew. Um, but watch it for the incredible performances by the lead two actresses. Um, and if you do that, I think, um, it'll be a much more enjoyable experience. Um, so those are some of the movies that I wanted to like really focus on in depth. Um, so other ones that I wanted to also include were um, The Watermelon Woman, which is a 1996 release by Cheryl Dunyer. Um, that is like largely considered one of the um, pioneering movies in the new queer cinema movement. Um, and it's the first fe- it's, it's credited as the first feature to be directed by a, um, a queer black woman. Um, and it became like, you know, a landmark in that right, right? It's about a woman who... Um, a, you know, a, lo- a young black lesbian working in a day job at a video store who wants to make a film about one of the black actresses in the ni- in a 1930s movie um, who's known for playing stereotypical mammy roles um, that were, you know, relegated to black actresses during that time. Um, and it's sort of, it feels like a real documentary, but it's actually, you know, a work of fiction. Um, but it's, it's such a interesting movie and it's so like deeply nineties. Um, when you watch it, like the soundtrack is so nineties, the outfits are amazing. Um, and it also, um, co-stars Guinevere Turner, who is one of the co-writers of American Psycho. Um, so that's a cool, another little fun fact. And she is also a lesbian in real life. Um, so hooray lesbians in a lesbian film. Um, that's an amazing one that you should definitely check out. And that'll, Um, That also is, you know, helping to support um, black women and queer black women. So that's another one to really um, look into. Um, Another amazing film that I discovered on Netflix once is a Brazilian release called The Way He Looks. That's about a, um, a, it's like a coming of age story about a blind kid who falls in love with his male classmate. It's a really sweet, um, intimate look at, um, you know, love or discovering who you are and first love. And it's definitely one that you should watch um, if you want sort of like a sweet little, um, you know, afternoon romance flick. Um, Another one to uh, look at when you're thinking about, you know, the queer canon in general is Un Chant de Mort, which is a 1950s short film by Jean Genet, um, which is basically like, I think it's like a 19 minute uh, film, short film. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, I think, or Vimeo maybe, I think Vimeo, cause it's pretty explicit. Um, it's basically just like this weird compilation of like, um, these two men in prison who are in love, but there's only like one small hole that they can see or connect through. And it has one of the most intimate scenes ever where, um, one of the main characters takes a drag off his cigarette and blows the smoke in through the hole. And the other guy like, like sucks it in through his mouth. And it's so intimate. And it's like, it's so, it's, it's so disarming to like, see that um, scene come from this small little low budget um, short film that's entirely in black and white and with no spoken dialogue. Um, but it's, it's, it's basically like a compilation of like um, masturbation scenes and dance scenes and sort of trippy um, uh, like, like otherworldly hallucinations almost of these two men in prison and the guard that like is, I guess, exploring his, you know, kink side. Um, but yeah, that's definitely an interesting to watch as 
you like sort of frame yourself this uh, larger um, picture frame of queer cinema in general. Um, another great early release is 1985's My Beautiful Andrette, which is Stephen Fryer's movie about um, Freer's Fryer's, which is another, is a movie about a um, um, I believe Palestinian immigrant who lives in London and owns a laundrette um, and falls in love with a uh, like London man played by a young Daniel Day Lewis. So that is a fun watch to see an early Daniel Day Lewis um, be in a queer film, um, which is you know filmed on a very low budget that has a surprising effect. I think it was originally planned to be a TV release. Um, and now it's had like a wonderful um, criterion um, restoration. Um, it's, you know, been ranked by the British Film Institute as one of the 50, 50 um, greatest British films in the 20th century. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really fun one to check out. And um, it gives like a really wonderful gritty look at, you know, the Thatcher years in London and, um, yeah. Oh, he's, he's Pakistani. I'm sorry, not Palestinian. He's Pakistani. Um, living in London and, you know, their eventual, you know, romance. And it's nice to see this sort of um, neon-soaked, low-budget film portray queer romance with such a nice touch. Um, some other really, you know, special ones are, you know, Hedwig, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, John Cameron Mitchell's sort of magnum opus, um, a Single Man, which is a Tom Ford release. The Kids Are All Right, of course, which is a, a beautiful movie starring um, Annette Bening and Julianne Moore. Um, Weekend by Andrew Haig is a devastating film that's also had a wonderful Criterion release about, you know, this sort of weekend-long romance that these two men fall into. Um, Pariah is a D. Reese release, which is, uh, she's a wonderful black, queer, lesbian um, director who was behind, you know, um, Mudbound, which we discussed a little earlier. Um, Tangerine is an amazing release by Sean Baker, the director of Florida Project. Uh, that one is about two trans sex workers living in LA um, and their sort of, you know, plight on, I believe it's Christmas Eve or Christmas night, um, as one of them is, I believe, re- released from jail. Um, it's it's uh, filmed entirely on an iPhone and it's set against this, you know, luminous backdrop of LA. Um, and it's a really touching um, look at, you know, uh, Sean Baker so wonderfully highlights the disenfranchised. So it's definitely a good one to check out. And I believe that one's on Netflix as well. So it's easily accessible. Of course, there's Carol, Todd Haynes's beautiful, lush 2015 release starring my queen, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Um, if you haven't seen that, what in God's name are you waiting for? Um, and then some other sort of documentaries to fill out um, your, you know, queer cinema canon if you're looking for others um, after you've watched and loved to Disclosure. Um, Wig is a wonderful release. Uh, it, I believe is an HBO production by, um, directed by Chris Mercarbel, which is um, a look at Wigstock, which is Lady Bunny's, you know, sort of drag version of, drag camp cabaret version of Woodstock. Um uh, it features, you know, wonderful performers like, you know, Brooklyn, Charlene Incarnate, and um, it portrays like non-binary folks and trans folks in a wonderful celebratory light. And um, it's a really fun documentary about the the resurrection of Wigstock after lying dormant for, you know, X amount of years. I can't remember the exact timeline, but it's such a fun watch. And it was released during Pride Month last year, I believe. And it's definitely something you should check out. Um Another, you know, fun, flouncy rom-com for, you know, adolescent 
viewers or adult viewers alike is, you know, Greg Berlanti's Love, Simon, which came out in 2018. And I know, like, we can critique it for, you know, starring a straight white guy. Um, but it really is, like, think about being a 15-year-old struggling with your sexuality and seeing Love, Simon. Like, I would have killed to have that as a kid. So as much as we can critique it, I think we can also celebrate it. Um there's, of course, um, God's Own Country, which is another, which is a British release by Francis Lee um, that came out in 2017. That's a beautiful um, uh, portrait of um, a kid living in the British countryside with a, a fiercely conservative family who falls in love with a immigrant who's working on his family's um, cattle farm, I believe. Um, that's a great one. Of course, there's Milk, which is another Gus Van Sant-directed film, which, you know, won Sean Penn, one of his Oscars, which, of course, gave birth to all that journalism about brave, straight performers playing gay. Um, but Milk actually is an amazing movie, and um, Dustin Lance Black won a Oscar for writing that movie, which I also... Um, and he's gay in real life, so we'd love to see that. Um, and I love the story of... I love, like, when people make jokes about Dustin Lance Black as... Um, after Sam Smith was like, oh my God, I'm the first gay person to win an Oscar or whatever that thing he said. Um, I love when people are like, oh, Dustin Lance Black, I guess, found dead. Um, but yeah, that's a, a, an amazing release in from 2008. And then there's Beau Travai, which is sort of in the camp of, this is like largely, I guess, considered a heterosexual movie, but because of the subtext, it is definitely, I would say, considered a queer cinema um, flick. Um, that's directed by Claire Denis, who I've raved about on this podcast. Um, that one is another one where you have to watch for the subtext and like really um, take in the homoeroticism of like everyday life as men sort of try to repress their um, heterosexual, I mean, homosexual inclinations or homoerotic inclinations, um, especially in the army. Um, so you should definitely check that one out. That's, that's a wonderful release. And of course there's wonderful drag movies like the birdcage, which I've discussed on this podcast, um, Tu Wong Fu, um, Priscilla queen of the desert. Um, and of course, you know, the movie that gave birth to RuPaul's drag race, as we know it, Paris is burning. I can't believe I didn't mention that when I was talking about documentaries that also just got a wonderful criterion release with like tons of extra footage and interviews with the cast. And yeah. Um, and then, there's, you know, of course, The Color Purple, which is Steven Spielberg's, one of Steven Spielberg's many masterpieces, um, which got uh, um, Whoopi Goldberg an, an Oscar nomination. And um, it's a fantastic adaption of the Alice Walker uh, novel, um, which I think many people forget is a queer um, love story. There's a queer love story in there between Celia and Suge. So that's another one that you should check out. And yeah, I mean, the, the list goes on and on, you guys, and I have so many more that we could discuss, and I have, uh, oh, and another documentary I forgot was McQueen, which is Ian von Holt's um, uh, uh, 2018 documentary about Alexander McQueen. If you have not watched this, you simply must. It's such a beautiful, intimate, um, no-holds-barred uh, look at Alexander, Mc and Alexander McQueen's troubled but brilliant mind. Um, I love that movie so much. You should definitely look into that. Um yeah, I think that's um, all I really have for now. Um, thank you guys for listening. Um, I had so much fun putting this list together and thinking about and watching these movies. Um, I'm always looking to expand my um, my intake of queer films and my, expand my perspective. So if you you know have critiques or feedback or encouragement or anything that you want to share, please hit me up at at his only vice on Instagram or my personal Instagram, which is at Dylan WMCP. 
Um, thank you all for listening. Um, I'm excited to do more of these themed episodes. Stay tuned for the next one, which will be, spoiler alert, um, female-directed film. So I'm really excited about that one as well. Um, again, thank you guys for listening. Um, I'll see you soon. Bye.